0: Good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Chris Causey. I'm the pastor here at Encounter Church. And I just want to welcome you. Today we're going to kick off a new series um, that I'm really excited about. It's going to be a little bit of a different series because this morning I want to kind of sell uh, what the next month is going to look like for you and I as we journey together. But I want to start with a story. So... um, I have a five-year-old, yeah, I feel like I'm in a confession group. I have a five-year-old little girl, and, uh, and so that means life is sometimes interesting for me and um, completely unpredictable because she wakes up with life and emotions that I don't even, I think, have capacity to have, right? Um, and so one of these like, beautiful things we've been enjoying recently um, is I've been pastor late a few times over the last month. And pastor late is different than you're late. Like you're late, you know, the service is kicking off. Like pastor late is I'm supposed to be here early, which is still not as early as like our setup team. They're here even earlier because they're awesome. And they're the ones that create these environments for you to experience. Yes, definitely worth clapping for. I a group of guys that you never see, some ladies that you never see who just like invisible ninjas transform this entire space for you. So um, I'm not that late, but I am pasture late sometimes. And the reason why I've been pasture late for the last, like in the last three or four weeks is because um, about a month ago, my daughter um, had this idea. You see, uh, most Sundays she brings something and because of like I'm part of like the teardown team, and my wife's part of the teardown team. Um, I mean, she's like playing as we're taking stuff down, and so we let her bring an item to kind of enjoy while we're doing that. And uh, a couple about a month ago, she was like, "I want to bring City Kitty." Okay, this is City Kitty. Please do not tell her I have City Kitty. I need to go ahead and state that for the record. This was smuggled out of the house this morning. I would be in real trouble if City Kitty was like to leak that City Kitty's here. So anyways, so this is City Kitty. City Kitty is one of her stuffed animals, and City Kitty travels with us a lot. This thing goes everywhere with us. Um, Except for whatever reason, about a month ago, my daughter realized that Encounter Church may not be the place for cats. In fact, she was really concerned that Encounter Church, while very loving and engaging with humans, would kick a cat out if... The cat showed up, and so Ella, as we are getting ready to leave, and it was like, okay, girl, we got to go, you know, pick your item out, let's roll, and she's like, I want to take City Kitty. I'm like, all right, let's bring City Kitty, but Dad, you don't know. Hold on. City Kitty needs a disguise. I'm sorry, what? City Kitty, if she goes dressed like a kitty, then the people will know she's a kitty, and they're going to throw her out a high window, I'm like, what kind of environment is down there? I'm like, I don't think we've ever made a public statement against cats that I'm aware of. But she's like, no, they will kick the cat out, Dad. She needs a disguise so that no one will know that a kitty has snuck in to the preschool environment. She can be my friend. And so that morning, we were late because City Kitty had to get dressed. Now, City Kitty can't just wear anything. City Kitty's going to church. She needs to look nice. So City Kitty, for the last four weeks, has worn different outfits to church. She sneaks through. No one notices her. She just happens to be my daughter's small little friend who's coming to church with her. And in fact, last week, because we have the most incredible like kids environments in the world, one of our preschool leaders was like, oh, let me meet your new friend. And like, huh, that's an interesting looking friend. But It can't be a cat because she's wearing clothes and I don't see her whiskers. And Ella's like, of course, you know, she's all like proud because City Kitty had passed the test. And this thing has caused us to be late multiple times because I've had to disguise City Kitty so that she doesn't get caught and thrown out. And what I love about it is some of you are thinking, I would say, take the naked cat now or we're leaving it here right? Let's just be real. That's going through all of our minds, including my own. We're going to take the naked cat with us or you're leaving it here. That's the option. But what I chose to do a month ago was to kind of jump into my daughter's world and see the world through her eyes. You see, in her eyes, this is not a cat. This is her best friend. And she really loves church and she wants her best friend to come to church with her. And so I had to step into her world and engage her because this wasn't merely some stuffed animal that could have been left at home. This was a friend who she wanted to hear about how much God loves him and to be with her in her little precious time that she has every week. And, and in stepping into her world over the last month, it's opened my eyes to some, some other things as I've been thinking about this series because this series is called See the World. It's about changing our perspective. It's about seeing the world as it is and seeing people in the world as they are, and and yet being a part of making that world better and different. And my daughter has engaged me and invited me to see the world she sees it. And I want to do the same thing for you this morning. Not that you see stuffed animals dressed in disguise, but that your lens, your perspective shifts a little bit, and that maybe you walk out not so much with a bunch of hows this morning. But with your eyes open to something that maybe has the power to change how you see the world. It starts, and where we begin the journey is with Jesus and his disciples in a similar place. Jesus is having a moment with his followers in John chapter 6, in this book that we call the Gospel of John. And John 6 is a very important chapter in the entire book of John because it's a turning point. You see, Jesus. Uh, public ministry goes from about 30 AD to 33 AD. So over the course of this time frame, Jesus has gathered 12 men who he's spending time with, and there are men and women following him that's part of a larger group, but he picks these 12 to be future leaders. And so that means he spends time with them. He gives them teaching. He gives them insights because he's going, he knows he's going to entrust this whole thing called Christianity to all of them. And so at John 6, you see Jesus's pace start to pick up in teaching the disciples this knowledge they need to have and having this perspective that they need to have. And so John 6, at the beginning of one of the most powerful and, and kind of most profound miracles across all four of the letters, uh, biographies of Jesus's life, Jesus invites his disciples into this insider moment because he wants to change the way they see the world. And this chapter, we could spend weeks on this chapter, but we're only going to spend about 25 minutes. And what I want to do is look at just 13 verses. This is an incredibly long chapter because it stands as the tipping point, the center point, the transition point for John's gospel. Something that's helpful to realize is that Jesus has four biographies written about him, each one by a different author, most of them directly or indirectly who were written by people who followed Jesus, one of the original 12, or part of that initial core. Um, One of them, Luke, writes the letter of Luke and the book of Acts. Um, Luke is not one of Jesus's original followers, but Luke is a researcher. And so Luke's book is written out of personal eyewitness accounts. John's book is different from all other three. It's this John and then the three. Because John writes this towards the end of his life. When he first started following Jesus, he was really, really young. And so he was in his most formative years. And and while Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those first three get written, John is out doing ministry. He's out engaging in the world, and he's growing up. Towards the end of John's life, John writes his book, the book of John. And it doesn't have the similar form or any of the similar structures that you'd find in the first three. John's book is a different book, because John is trying to call people to see Jesus differently. He wants them to understand a richer fuller picture of Jesus because John and Jesus had this really incredibly close relationship. And so in John 6, we we jump into the story where it says sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the sea of Galilee. And that is the sea of Tiberius. This is important because John writes this book 30, 40 years after all the other writers write it. So at this time when John's writing the book, the sea of Galilee is no longer known as the sea of Galilee by most younger folk. It's known as the Sea of Tiberius. It's been renamed after the Caesar. And so John's writing to a later audience, but he's like, and for those old timers, you remember that's the Sea of Galilee. And for you young timers, that's the Sea of Tiberius. He wants to make sure everyone's remembering this moment. And he keeps on, he says, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Jesus is performing these incredible miracles. He's doing amazing things over the course of his public ministry, and people are starting to follow him. And it says in verse 3, "...then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples, and the Jewish Passover festival was near." And this is what I was alluding to earlier. So Jesus' public ministry, one of the reasons we know it was three years, is because of the Passover. Passover is something that Jewish, the Jewish faith, the Jewish people have been celebrating for thousands of years. And you can literally still today track the specific date of the Jewish Passover. It's a very locked in, very rigid date. It's not fluid. It's very easy to identify across the history. And so we know that there are three Passovers that mark Jesus' public ministry. Because the third Passover, he dies during the midst of the third Passover in the course of his life. And so this is the second one, which tells you he has one year left before he's crucified. And Jesus is starting to pick up the pace. He knows I've got one year. I've had two years behind me. I have one year to, to unpack and to give everything to these 12 guys. And so what does he do as this great crowd is walking toward him? He calls the 12 up to the mountain. He says, come here, come here. And they all sit down as this great crowd starting to head towards him. And Jesus is about to have a defining moment with them. He's about to unpack and, and, and really challenge them to see the world fundamentally differently than how they see it. And that's why we, we pick up in verse five, when Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming towards him. Here's, they give you what great crowd means. That's 25,000 people is estimated to kind of further wrap that. That's, that's if you happen to be up on top of Prudential Tower looking down or maybe in a helicopter kind of, kind of hovering above Fenway, When a game is over, it's it's about the number of Red Sox fans pouring out in a major significant game. So imagine watching Fenway just empty with Red Sox fans, and they're walking towards you. In fact, it's not coincidence. They're headed towards you on purpose. And this is what Jesus is wanting his disciples to see. He says, you see this? Hey, Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? It says he asked this only to test them, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. John was like, I want to make sure I'm clear. Jesus isn't asking a question because he doesn't know the answer. Jesus is setting them up because his time is limited and he needs them to get this lesson. He's the good teacher who's pulling out something before he's going to teach the lesson because he wants to make sure they get it. And John's kind of communicating this for us because John was there watching it play out right in front of him. And Philip, the reason Philip is asked this question is because Philip grows up just right down the road from where they are. Philip is from this area. Philip knows where the stop and shop. He knows where the Wegmans. He knows where the target happens to be. He's got the lay of the land. He knows the merchants. He knows the business hours. He knows this place. And so Jesus says, Philip, where can we buy food for these people? And Philip, slightly nerdy, answers him. It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread to each, for each one to have a bite. And what I love is that the Bible is not written in English. It was originally written in Greek. And what Philip actually quotes here, it's not vague. Philip is not being like, oh, it's half a year's worth of wages. Philip is actually really specific. In the Greek, he gives the number. He's like, oh, it's about 200 denarii which is the currency of that time, 200 denarii, if you like doing math like me, then what you find out is that's about the average of eight, eight months wages working six days a week for people who are making minimum wage at the time. Philip's trying to communicate, this is a significant sum of money. We don't have that money, and no one in this group has that much money. There's just not, and you notice he says, this is just the bread. To, to kind of translate into today's money, because I did that, um, what we're looking at is about $17,124 is what Philip computes. He's like, eh, that's about $17,124, just hypothetically, Jesus, right? We all know those people, right? You know, the technical people, and this is a technical guy. He's like, $17,124. Ironically enough, inflation has continued since then to now, that it would cost you about $19,000 to buy that bread today because I also went and looked that up. And so Philip is still pretty accurate and right. He's like, Jesus, it would take a lot of money. He's a little bit pessimistic. He's a little bit blunt. And he's just like, mm, let's pass on that Jesus. Well, and then you've got Andrew. It says in verse 8, another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Now, Simon Peter, if you've, if you've spent time working through the New Testament, or if maybe you remember stories from childhood, or maybe if not, Peter is the, the one who's got the big, talk, he's the big talker of the group. If Philip's being the nerd, Peter's the one who's always promising things. He's, always, he's that guy who's like, oh yeah, I can do that. I'll do it. He's got this bravado about him. Andrew kind of has got this same go-getter spirit. Andrew hears Jesus' question and goes out. And and Andrew speaks up and says, Well, Jesus, um, here's a boy with five five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will that go among so many? I mean, whereas Philip calculates, Andrew actually goes and takes initiative. And what does he find in the midst of a crowd? He finds this. And for the sake of the argument, he finds this. He's got a little kid with a basket, and he can make a sandwich. It's like, Jesus, this is all we got. This is what this kid had, and I just stole his lunch. (laughs) Right? I mean, this is what's happening. And... And he's like, but let's just be real. There's 25,000 people. There's no way this covers it. We got a couple, couple fish sandwiches, but that's it. And, and Andrew's, at least he takes initiative, right? He, he goes out. But the problem is, is that Andrew is realistic. You got Philip being pessimistic, like it's $17,124 estimating. Andrew's like, well, this is what we got. So, you know, you, you work with it. And Jesus, in this really kind of powerful moment, is like, okay, it's now time for the lesson. So in verse 10, it says, have the people sit down. He's like, I'm done talking. Let me work. So the 25,000 people begin to sit down. John wants us to know because he recognizes this is a large crowd. So he says there's plenty of grass in that place. And they sat down. He says about 5,000 men were there. And this is how we know there's 25,000. Because in this time frame, uh, men were used for counting. The men were not, this was not a men's retreat. This was not 5,000 men out and just out and about. This was 5,000 families. And so that's how we know there's about 25,000 plus people present this day, because we've got these men and their families all gathered around to see Jesus. Now, barley significant because barley is the bread of the poor. This is not the bread that rich people have. This is what poor people travel with. This is what they eat every day, because this is the cheapest bread you can buy at the time. And so Jesus says, sit down. And then he takes the loaves and he gives thanks, and he distributes to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And then he did the same with the fish. And I don't know if you notice the phrase. It says he distributed as much as they wanted wanted this isn't nibbles this isn't crumbs this is this isn't like you know when you go to those those parties and they've got those little finger foods and they got the really small plates and you're left with a dilemma do you embarrass yourself going up with that small plate 15 times to get the semblance of a meal or do you just starve in the presence of food Right? I mean, that's, this is what the nibbles look like. I mean, but Jesus doesn't roll out this little appetizer bar. He drops a full-fledged buffet in front of them. And they eat as much as they want, right? In verse 12, when they had, when they had all had enough to eat, all, being 25,000, had enough to eat, not nibble, nibble, little like what a pig in a blanket, little nibble, nibble. I mean, straight up all the fish au filet sandwiches you want in front of you, nibbling them things down, and you're like, I'm done. When that had happened, then he has the disciples make sure that nothing's wasted so they collect the food. I mean, this is incredible. This is an incredible amount of food. So I did the math because I'm curious, how much does it cost? What does it look like to feed 25,000 people? So I read forums and manuals that I would have never read in life, but if you're ever planning a party, let me know because I am now versed what the average person eats in a variety of foods and poultry and products. I mean, I got you covered. Let me know because here's what it breaks down to. What you're looking at, it it would take about 3,750 of these to feed the people bread, which is roughly about $19,000 to buy this. But this, to feed the people for this, this adds up to 37,500 cans of fish. So you've got 3,750 loaves of this, 3,750 of these five, and 37,500 of these this will cost you at the current market rate of tilapia, which happens to be exactly what they serve that day because that's what is swimming around in the Sea of Galilee, you're looking at close to an $80,000 miracle. A small mill that would have cost less than a dollar is a really cheap mill that little boy had in his basket, and it becomes an $80,000 miracle. It's incredible. But to kind of further wrap our minds around it, if you were to take up and to really kind of get a handle on how much food there was, just to use this, if you stack, stack 37,500 cans of this fish on top of each other, what you get is 3,906 feet of fish standing tall. That's approximately the John Hancock, the shiny glass blue buildings, five of them stacked beside it to equal the height of fish produced out of one tiny can. Like, do you, Can you imagine how incredible this miracle was? When you actually start to do the math and you look at the bill, you start to get a handle at the sheer massiveness of this miracle. And Jesus is using this miracle because he wants this to be a defining moment for them. In fact, it's of all four of the biographies written about Jesus that we call the gospels. And it's written by different authors, four different authors who were in proximity of Jesus, or Luke, with the exception, does the eyewitness accounts of people who were in proximity with Jesus. These people all recount the same storyline of Jesus, but they all pull out the different specifics that stood out to them the most. This miracle is the only one that all four biographies pull out. This is the only specific, like healing feeding, ministry, miracle that Jesus does, that all four of them does. And the reason why is because it stands out the way Jesus intended it to stand out. It marks them. That's why he's called them all up. That's why he's invited them around. All of them remember this moment because it changed the way they saw the, the, the world. It changed the way they imagined what could be. Where Philip had been pessimistic, where Andrew had been realistic, Jesus introduces the idea of being these faith-infused people who, who see possibility. Not pessimism, not realism, but possibility, potential. That with faith, they can look at circumstances and imagine what God can do because he's done things in the past through them already. He's wanting to expand the horizon. What he's wanting to do is awaken their imagination. He wants them to use their imagination to imagine what God wants to do. Our imagination has been given to us as an invitation by God to step into our world and see with eyes of faith the possibility what could be, not just what is. Now here's the challenge as adults. Most of us, if I had started this message off with, hey, let me tell you a story about City Kitty, but it wasn't about my daughter, it was about Jenny and City Kitty, it wouldn't have gone over quite as well, right? It wouldn't have been cute, it wouldn't have been adorable. Ella disguising City Kitty to sneak her into church, adorable. Jenny disguising City Kitty to sneak her into church, disturbing, right? You're like, we trust her with our children? Are we sure that's wise? Because somewhere along the line, we've bought into this idea that imagination is not meant to be used by adults. It's a childish thing. It's something kids do. And when they grow out of it, they step into adulthood. They get rid of childish things. But I don't think imagination is childish. And I don't think any of us struggle with imagination. Here's the key. I think imagination, as we've gotten older, it morphed on us, it changed, it it refocused. And most of us never even realized that was what was happening in our lives. For my daughter, whose world is awakened to wonder and what could be impossibility and, and a cat being disguised so it can sneak into a counter church, what we use our imagination for is to imagine the bad things that can happen in our lives. For our daughter, my daughter, who is awakened to a world of wonder with her imagination, we awaken a world of worry with our imagination, don't we? We imagine all the bad things that can happen. We imagine all the ways that can play out wrong. We use our imagination not to create and inspire. We use it to infuse our lives with anxiety. We use imagination to escape reality instead of infusing reality with possibility. We use it to objectify others, to turn them into objects for our own pleasure. We use our imagination to destroy our marriages, to rip apart coworkers. Right? We use our imagination every single day. We just use it wrongly. It's not something you or I ever grew out of. We just let it grow us in the wrong direction. We spend our days and our thoughtful hours allowing our imagination to destroy our confidence, to fuel insecurity, to weaken our marriages, to break down our relationships, to squash and rob potential from others when it was given to us to awaken potential and possibility in others. It's not a childish thing. And in our household, it's my daughter who uses imagination better than me because I use it for all the ways God never intended it for. And Jesus knew that. That's why he invites his disciples over. and He says, hey, come here. I want you to awaken your mind to possibility of what I can do through you. Because Philip just sees all the ways this thing won't work. And Andrew's just out there looking for things to confirm the problem. And Jesus says, none of you are looking at the world and seeing a possible solution. None of you are imagining how I could show up the way I've shown up already over these last two years. You're all using your imagination, wrong, And he calls them with this moment to imagine what could be, because our imagination was a gift from God to call us, especially his people, the people of faith, To use it to create, to imagine, to call people out of darkness and into light, to speak to our own selves and to imagine our marriages, not imagine escape from our marriages, to imagine how strong they could be, not imagine replacing that someone with someone else. Or imagining the uniqueness that God has put inside of our kids and how they've been made and who they are. Or imagine the possibility of a career in a future, not to use our imagination focused on all the things we're bad at. But to use our imagination to awaken that thing inside of us called purpose that God gave us. That he put in each one of us. That he invites us that imagination is an invitation to partner with God to see the world as it could be and to act on that. And don't we need more people in the world who could see the world as it possibly could be? Like our imaginations are something that we should reclaim and that we should leverage. It should change the way we see the world. It's behind what we do as a church. It's our operating system. That the more you spend time with us, the more you will learn even in how we process decisions or when we step into what others would call problems, we, we ask the question, is there a possibility? Is there an opportunity? Is what others would call an obstacle, an opportunity for God to show up? And we're just crazy enough to think that he still is in that business of opportunity, of possibility, of transforming lives. And so when we stepped into this season that we've been in for the last year where I get invited into an office and I'm told, hey, it's been really good to have you guys here, but you can't stay here anymore. And to be a church just starting to figure out what does this look like and how do we navigate, and, and we could have easily walked out of those meetings and just seen obstacles. But we said, what if there is an opportunity present? We walk into a 10,000 square foot space and where other people, like a Philip, would just say, um, I see 10,000 square feet. It's pretty bland. There's a lot of work that's going to need to be done. I'm estimating that refurbishing and reconstruction. I mean, it's just, here's the spreadsheet. I've done the math. I've given you the estimate." don't think that's going to happen. When others just see, well, this is where it is. There's no way a church being kicked out of a middle school could just step straight into a 10,000 square foot space. That's too much of an obstacle. We said, well, what if it's an opportunity? And then, because when you start to imagine possibility and you start to take steps of faith in that direction, what happens is God, if he is doing something, starts to come alongside of you. And so all of a sudden we start to realize we've got a lot more cash on hand than we thought we would at this point. And then someone steps in and says, "Hey, we want to we want to give $100,000 because we feel like this is something worth investing in." And all of a sudden it just starts to build. And we say, "Okay, maybe there is that this spirit inside of us, God's spirit inside of us where walking into a room, and with possibility we don't see this, we start to imagine how this could look like that. We're like, well, what if that 10,000 square foot space is perfect for creating a place and a space for hope? What if we stepped out and started to create something that, in a really good location, just a mile from where we are right now, We could start to create spaces and places where it's not just our possibility, it's not just our faith, but that we could start to demonstrate our faith and create avenues and programs and places and spaces where people could come in struggling with their relationships or where college students or young professionals can come in and start to navigate their season of their life and and step into the purpose God has for them or a place where students could grow up in a world that's filled with all the reasons that they can't make it and all the things and all the reminders of what they're not and and an immediate crazed around image and, and give them something far greater, the fact that they are loved and been created in the image of God and creating spaces where what marks teenagers isn't insecurity, but what marks teenagers is a confidence and a swagger, not rooted in some kind of self-promotional hype, but rooted in the fact that God loves them, that the divine is for them and that he has purposed each one of their steps and he came up with them and they are his idea and he has a plan for them. Imagine creating a space where teenagers and young professionals and adults could start to walk out that life plan and purpose. Like, what if that is what that could become? We started to dream and imagine because this is the God we serve. He has always been about taking the old and making it new. We proclaim that every Easter that the dead has been risen, that there is hope, that there is no situation beyond hope. We don't believe in hopeless because we serve a God who walks into a graveyard and can raise up a crowd. We believe a God who can walk into dead things like dead relationships and broken relationships and bring beauty and life. That's who we are. And that's why. When everyone else would have walked in that building and saw, like Philip or like Andrew, we said, no, Jesus performed this miracle to mark us, to change the way we see the world and to change the way we imagine the world. And we said, let's go. God's for us. Let's go. We don't have all the details worked out, but we know where we're going. And tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., This starts to look like that. Because tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., we begin construction. And in a few months, you won't be looking at a picture of a lobby. You'll be standing in it. And that... And it's because as a church, we walk in that... Power of imagination infused with faith and hope, and imagining what God could do and what He could do through us. That's why, for those who call Encounter Church home, we sent you this a few weeks ago. Because, like this young boy, who walks up, who Andrew robs his lunch and gives it to Jesus, his small, tiny, like looking at a sea of twenty-five thousand people. How does this make a difference? His contribution paves the way for a transformation. And we knew that when people were like, well, how do we play this out? I'm like, I I don't know, but I know we as a people are generous and that what God has been doing over this last year and a half has been incredible. And so let's invite, like that boy who stepped into the circumstance, who stood at the threshold of a miracle, let's, let's, let's as a church step into this miracle. And some of you have already generously given because you believe in what God is doing. But I want to call for those who call Encounter Church home. I want to call you in the same spirit of that boy and where we are to to read through this. And over the next month, pray and imagine what God would want to use you to do. Because this isn't about a space. This is about us stepping in and bringing possibility, not just here, but there in Guatemala and, and to the Syrian refugee crisis to make a difference, and to make room for hope. And that's why you receive this, and so here's what I would like to call you to do. I'd like to say, over the next month, pray and imagine what God would wanna do through you. And in the beginning of June, you can mail it or bring it, but the first of June, we'll make and carve out a space for us to bring this card in. And part of this card, whether you do it electronically or physically, Part of it is to say, hey, over, over this year, I'm going to give this amount straight to that and to the hope here, there, and everywhere kind of initiative that we're stepping into. And for some of us, we can only give X amount of dollars, but we know over the next year or through 2017, this is what we're going to give to it. And that's why we've created a space that says pledge amount, because we're going to say, hey, as a people, we, we want to, in faith, step out in this possibility, and for those who are in this room who, don't, who who are maybe exploring faith or just here or enjoying us online who are just kind of beginning to step out this, this kind of journey with us, uh, we're not asking you to give towards it, but we invite you to be a part of the miracle, to, to walk alongside of us like those people that day who witnessed what God did through a small group of people who are awakened to the power of possibility. And maybe if you're here today and you're like, well... I, That sounds really good, but that's all about faith, and I don't have any in this specific realm. I'm not sure I even buy into this faith thing. I would just say, to close it out, that faith is still present, even if you would say you're not a faith person. Faith is always that driving initiative behind any step towards the possibility. Did you know Walt Disney World? Walt Disney Corporation was born in the midst of the Great Depression. One of the largest, most profitable companies in the world was born at the one time a company should not have been born. And it was because Walt Disney had faith. He didn't have faith in God or Christ. He had faith in himself and what he could do. But it was still faith that propelled his possibility step. See, faith has always been involved when we step out in our present and start to imagine what could, what could be. And so I would say that you're actually far closer than you realize that faith is present in a lot of those steps that we take, where reality in the present isn't exactly where we want it to be. And to even to say to you, "What's in your personal life, your greatest problem could be your greatest possibility." And that to invite you to, to engage with us in the app and to start to explore faith in your own process of naming and understanding the specifics of faith and what fuels you. See, Jesus wanted to make sure his people didn't leave without this idea really locked in. And so verse 13, it says, so they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten Jesus wanted to make sure as they left that day that they weren't just walking out with this great, incredible realization of that, because he knew how the mind would work. He would say, well, did 25,000 really eat? Maybe some passed on the meal. And so Jesus said, hey, go around and collect all that's been left over. And each one of the disciples had a basket filled with food. And so as they walked out, after 25,000 people had been fed carrying this, they all knew that what they had just witnessed was a call to change the way they see the world, to open their eyes to possibility of what God could do through them and use them. And the story of the Christian church and the early church is the story of people who are awakened with this mindset and this imagination of possibility. And I want to invite you back over the next month because we're going to start to talk about how do we begin to live this out? How do we begin to demonstrate a life, this action. How do we become a people who start to see the world differently, to grow in a grander perspective, and to start to engage that world through the lens of possibility, not just pessimism or cynicism? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your grace and for your love, and thank you for this month of the miracles that you're going to bring of the opportunities that are on the horizons. I know that there are many of us who are in this room or joining us online who may be in their own reality right now to see the obstacles. And I pray that you would open their eyes to the realm of possibility, of opportunity that you desire to do through them. And so help us as a people in this next month to take bold faith steps to imagine I thank you for tomorrow morning, for what you're beginning to do and transforming that space so that we can create a place where we make room for hope for this area, for our lives, and for the lives of our friends and neighbors. And it's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. So we're going to close out the service the same way we do every single week. The band's going to come, and they're going to lead us through a song where we just are able to carve out and to reflect in the process. And and recognize for some of you, um, there's not a lot of handles on how to do this. This is really a kickoff to a series that does have the handles of how. But that invite you to maybe use this time in responding to Imagine. To to redirect your imagination from fueling your insecurity, from fueling your worry, to starting to direct your imagination to possibility of what could be in your life. What could be the defining characteristics of that relationship with a child, a spouse, a roommate, your professional, your personal life. And to use this song and this declaration as just a space for you to kind of, even if you're not sure if you believe in God, to ask God to help you take that faith step, and making that possibility a reality in your life this month. It's also a, car, a time where we carve out for people to take next steps. That so we, as a people, there are countless dozens of people who are serving behind the scenes. And for some of you, maybe this week you say, you know what, I wanna I wanna be a part of serving here, or I need somebody to pray for me that. We use this as a time for you to use the app to let us know who you are if you're first time, to let us know how we can pray for you, or to help you take next steps and whatever that would be um, that you would want to engage with in, in your journey as you're playing it out. And this is a time where, for those who call Encounter Church Home, we practice our generosity, whether through the, through the app and giving or through the basket, we use this as a time to practice that generosity that I referred to earlier. And for, for those maybe who were today who were stirred and said, you know what, I didn't get one of those, or I threw that away because I thought it was junk mail and I didn't know what it was. But as you swing by starting point today, as you, as you head out, um, we, we've got a, a, we've got 50, 60 of them at starting point, And they're for you just to grab so that you can have a copy if maybe you don't have one or got lost in the mail. But we've, we brought some and we have them for you if you want to grab them on the way out. But I want to invite you to stand. I invite you to sing, invite you to process and imagine what God could do through you in this course of this month when we start to see the possibilities and imagine the opportunities in front of us.